You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying it. They call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. What have I been doing? It honestly feels like I've just been doing work stuff for the last week or so. Uh, So it's probably just that, to be honest. Nothing terribly exciting. I'm even going to be editing this episode later than normal on Saturday because I have to take a class to make up for going to see Taylor Swift. That is technically not a work thing, but work adjacent thing. So I got to do that tomorrow morning when I normally record. So midnight oil recording it is. So yes, this is happening on Friday night. So if anything crazy happens between now and then, like the impending hurricane we're apparently getting on Sunday and Monday. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, Yeah, this will be a little little outdated, (laughs) I suppose. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Blue Beetle. That's right. I actually went and paid, well, use my movie pass because I definitely signed up for that again because I'm ready to be heard again, to actually see a DC movie in an actual movie theater. And you know what? Wasn't mad about it. The superhero origin storyline for Blue Beetle was pretty run-of-the-mill. Nothing new there. But what really shined was the characters and just the depth of the world that the screenwriter and the director and just the filmmakers in general injected into this story. If you don't know, the film revolves around a young Mexican-American man who becomes a superhero after he comes in contact with a blue scarab. Supporting him as he figures out his new abilities is his eclectic family. Each and every one of them brought something vital to the story in a way that neither felt hokey or forced, and they elevated what would have been otherwise just another superhero film that everybody is pretty much tired of. I mean, we're tired of them now, right? The last few Marvels for me, because I, like I said, I love Marvel. It's been disappointing. Secret Invasion was a mess. But anyway, I'm getting up topic because it's late and the Adderall's worn off. I can't speak to the quality of The Flash because I haven't seen that yet, but out of the DC films that have come out in the last year or so, basically from Black Adam to now, this was a huge improvement. Honestly, on par with a lot of the Marvel films that have come out of late, but that's not a particularly high bar to hit. So yeah, that's that's Blue Beetle. Strike updates. The writers in AMPTP are still at the table swapping proposals. It's been about a week since they started doing that. And yes, they've made it a whole week without murdering each other. So that's a win in itself, honestly. Um, sag after it is still in a holding pattern. Again, assuming that's not going to restart until the writers get their deal and then they'll probably, well, they have to move on to sag after because everybody's getting real pissed that this has stretched on for as long as it has because it's affecting. Film is a huge part of the LA economy, 
and it hasn't been basically functioning since May. So it's starting to trickle into other people's, you know, livelihoods. Everyone always forgets that film's not made in a bubble. This is a whole community and a whole community that was built around the film industry. And when there's no film industry happening, then what are the other businesses supposed to do? So it's a huge, huge thing. None of my friends who work on crews can get jobs because there's no jobs because there's nothing shooting. So it's it's a mess, you guys. It's a Yeah. So hopefully this is ending sooner rather than later. But I've said that I've been saying that since May. And now onto this week's topic. And you've probably guessed already, but it's another run through of another country's film history. This week, we're taking a look at Brazilian cinema from its earliest days to its peak in the Cinema Nuovo era to the modern day. I'm going to just say it right up top here so I don't have people. People are still going to complain. I've I've made my peace with it as much as I can, but the pronunciations are going to be a little rough today. I'm not super familiar with Portuguese. I phonetically spelled everything out, but my brain and my English-speaking tongue still panic when I see even the phonetic things I've done for myself. So um, I promise I'm not being an a-hole on purpose. I just can't make make the noises right, and I'm very sorry in advance. I, I'm sure they're not going to be that bad, but I'm just, it is what it is. I'm doing my best over here. So with that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Like always, or almost always anyway, film in Brazil begins with the screening of the Lumiere films. This occurred sometime within the first six months of 1896 in Rio de Janeiro. I looked around, could not get a concrete date. It was all over the map, so all I can say for certain, sometime, first six months of 1896. The first film believed to be shot by a Brazilian, or Brazilian Italian in this case, technically, was made by Alfonso Segreto, who shot footage of Guanabara Bay in 1898 while on a ship from Europe. This might possibly have been the vessel that was bringing him back to Brazil after he journeyed to Paris to procure a cinematograph. No copy of this film still exists, so it's hard to know for certain if this was actually the first film. Segreto would go on to make documentaries with his brother Pascual. After the first theater was opened by the Segreto brothers in 1897, from about 1900 to 1912, Brazilian films were what was primarily seen on Brazilian screens. Each year in this period, Brazilian filmmakers were producing over 100 short films, so it was a lot of content. In 1908, during this period known as Brazil's Bela Epoca, or Golden Age of Cinema, the country also saw its first internationally popular film, Os Estranguladores, directed by Antonio Leal. The film was about an infamous crime that had happened in Rio de Janeiro. The film also launched the trend of making crime films based off of events that had happened weeks earlier, so very Law & Order-esque, like ripped from the headlines type situation. This golden age would also cement Brazil's tradition of short film production, which is still a thriving market to this day. Starting in 1911, however, as was the case with Canada last week, the Brazilian film market was overwhelmed with the importation of foreign films, namely Hollywood ones. 
These films were a higher quality than what was being produced in Brazil, forcing the local filmmakers to work producing newsreels and documentaries. Despite this, some local fiction films were made, including Ejemplo, Regenerador, or Moralizing Example from 1919. The film was directed and written by a Spaniard named Jose Medina and is the only full surviving example of this era of Brazilian film work, according to the sources I used. The art of Brazilian filmmaking was preserved through the 1920s by filmmakers working away from the urban centers of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo in what were known as cycles. These quote-unquote independent filmmakers tended to make movies more in the avant-garde genre, so low-key they were just kind of weird and wacky. An example of this is Limite, or The Boundary, from 1930, directed by a 22-year-old or 18-year-old, depending on the source, named Mario Pejoto. The film was not seen by many in its day, but has since gained so much notoriety that it actually topped the list of significant Brazilian films in a poll compiled by Brazilian film critics in the 1980s. The film is an avant-garde silent piece that centers on a man and two women lost at sea, and their pasts unfold through flashbacks. It was the only film Pejota would make. It's also in the Criterion Collection, so very, very... Of anything I talk about today, with the exception of like, the more modern films, probably the easiest one to get your hands on. I haven't compiled the list just to make sure, but I know that one is on the Criterion because I've got it queued up to watch hopefully this weekend. It took the coming of sound to finally allow the primarily Portuguese-speaking Brazilians to make strides to make their own films in their own language since the 1910s. Ademar Gonzaga founded the Cineidia Studios in Rio, and a new, very Brazilian genre came out of that studio. Known as the Chanchada, these films were based on musical reviews and backstage-style musicals, so basically musicals that dealt more with the behind-the-scenes of theater life, but with Brazilian comic theater and carnival added in. By 1930, Carmen Miranda had become the highest-paid singer in Brazil. As a result, Brazilian movie studios were eager to put her in the pictures, and a series of movies revolving around samba and carnival would emerge starring the actress, singer, multi-hyphenate, let's call her multi-hyphenate, primarily out of Senadia. Four years later, a Brazilian film magazine would declare her, quote, the most popular figure in Brazilian cinema. In 1939, American filmmakers came to the country to shoot films as part of a good neighbor policy. This policy... (laughs) This policy would do nothing to promote Latin American films in the USA, as was promised, and the most notable achievement out of this so-called good neighbor policy was the unfinished Orson Welles docudrama It's All True. Another thing these good neighbors did was snatch up Carmen Miranda. She would leave the country for New York to appear in a Broadway show, The Streets of Paris, in 1939. However, the producer would not agree to pay for her music group, Banda da Lua, to perform with her on stage, and that caused some drama because she would not go on stage without her particular band. Brazil's president at this time saw the cultural relevance of Carmen Miranda showcasing her talent on the U.S. stage and decided that the Brazilian government would cover the expenses needed to bring Miranda's band to New York. The president also named Miranda a goodwill ambassador, raising her profile to a celebrity status by the time the New York's World Fair took place later that year. Seven months later, Carmen Miranda's Bahian look took the American fashion scene by storm. Carmen Miranda was also chosen as one of the 10 most outstanding women of 1939. 
She starred in her first Hollywood feature film, Down Argentine Way, in 1940, and a pretty prolific Hollywood career followed. The president's decision to use government funds to support the arts is one of the earliest documented cases of government support of the Brazilian film industry. This relationship continues to be a huge part of the nation's industry to this day, as you will soon see. In 1943, Mohacir Fenelon founded the Atlantida Studios in Rio, where the Shanshada format was perfected. From there, parody was increasingly incorporated into the genre, particularly to counteract the fact that Brazilian films weren't able to match the technological advancements of Hollywood films. So instead, they decided just to kind of make fun of them. As a result, these films are widely overlooked due to their commercial nature, but they are still very important to the history of Brazilian film. It was here also that the careers of the comic team Oscarito and Grande Otello were developed. Otello tended to be the sidekick in these films for what it's worth. An example of their work as well as the Shanshara format or genre of this era is the film Carnival Atlantida from 1952. Oscarito and Otello encounter a film producer named Cecilio B. De Milo, who is attempting to shoot an adaptation of the life of Helen of Troy in the Hollywood style. Oscarito plays a teacher who is aiding the filmmakers, while Otello plays a Rio ne'er-do-well who helps convince the producers that the film should be less serious and more unfaithful to the original, and hilarity ensues. While the spirit of the Shanshara lives on, more or less, in the country's telenovelas, many of the films produced by Atlantida have been lost due to various fires and flooding of its storage facilities, so that's not great. Another notable studio from this era was Compania Cinematográfica Veracruz, a production company based out of Sao Paulo. Their biggest success was O Cangocero, or The Bandit, from 1953. That film broke local box office records, won two prizes at Cannes in 1954, and was distributed in 22 different countries. Alberto Cavalcanti, the most successful Brazilian-born filmmaker of this era, had been hired by Veracruz in 1949 as its head of production, but he left before its bankruptcy in 1954. Depending on the source, he may or may not have been fired. Turned out this was best-case scenario for him, as one of his next films, O Canto do Mar, Song of the Sea from 1953, would feed into Brazil's most prolific period, which is known as Cinema Novo, meaning new cinema. This movement occurred in the 1960s into the very, very early 1970s. The films of that movement as a whole were a departure from what several filmmakers of the movement considered to be the colonizer's view of Brazil, one that considered the very real issues of poverty and other issues in the country as foreign when they were anything but. The most important director of the period leading up to Cinema Nuovo, though, was Nelson Pereira dos Santos, who has been called the father and even the pope of the Cinema Nuovo movement, amongst other things. This belief originates in the production of the 1954 film Rio 40 Graus, or Rio 40 Degrees. A year before this film was made, Dos Santos had worked as an assistant on Agualha no Palhero, or Needle in the Haystack, which was the first Brazilian feature to adopt the style of Italian neorealism. If you can't remember from like a million years ago, Italian neorealism included shooting on location, using non-professional actors, and dealing with contemporary issues in a very simple, direct, or non-dramatic manner. 
By making Rio 40 Degrees, Dos Santos ushered in an era of independent, low-budget filmmaking that would become characteristic of the Brazilian new cinema. Rio 40 Degrees begins with a popular samba from the most recent Carnival, but the chanchada format is removed and the audience is then presented with a film dealing with the real Rio de Janeiro and its people. Rio 40 Degrees laid the groundwork for this movement, which would give unflinching looks at the miserable plight of Brazilian minority communities while showing the depth of their culture. Dos Santos and the majority of his Nuovo filmmakers were radically opposed to the new Hollywood-style model that the Brazilian industry was trying to adopt and decided to go with the neorealist ways was seen to be a political act. As the movement went on, the Nuovo films would become increasingly political until they weren't, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. And in the 1960s, Brazil was producing the most political cinema in all of South America. Film historians have divided Cinema Nuovo into three phases, the first running from 1960 to 1964, the second from 64 to 68, and the last from 68 to 72, and we will go into all of those right now. The first phase began with the rebellion of all things seen as commercial, and the films that would come out of that were neorealistic in form. I've said that like five times already, but that's what happened. These first Nuovo films were often rural in setting and dealt with starvation, violence, religious alienation, and economic exploitation. The films also often showed raw, unflinching looks at life, but also maintained an optimistic outlook of it. Historians presume this latter characteristic is due to the young age of the majority of these filmmakers. They're like, yeah, it sucks now, but it could get better. That's very much a younger person's outlook on the world, or hopefully it is. The most notable filmmaker of this movement was Glauber Rocha, who is by most accounts considered to be the greatest Brazilian filmmaker of all time. His first feature film was Baravento, or The Turning Wind, from 1962, which was about a mostly Afro-Brazilian fishing community. His next film, Black God, White Devil, is set in the Sertão, a legendary and inhospitable, drought-stricken region of Brazil's northeast, where rain typically only comes in the form of flash floods. Rocha's films were praised the world over, bringing international attention to the Nuovo movement. In 1964, the popular democratic president of Brazil was removed from office by military coup, turning Brazil into a military-run autocracy. As a result, democracy was increasingly undermined in Brazil, and foreign, especially North American capital investment, was encouraged. Brazilians lost faith in the ideals of Cinema Nuovo as a result, as the movement had promised to protect civilian rights, yet had failed to uphold democracy. As a result, many filmmakers, not surprisingly, began exploring new ideas. This led to the second phase of Cinema Nuovo. If the films of the first phase were optimistic, the second phasers were more intellectual and explored the failure of several isms plaguing the Brazilian people. Many of these films intensified the political struggle from the left, and the films took place in urban settings once more versus the rural ones of the first phase. Examples of this era include Sao Paulo S.A. from 1965 and Terra M. Trance, or Land of Anguish, from 1967. Terra M. Trance was directed by Rocha and deals with the political involvement of a poet, Paulo Martins, in a fictional South American country called El Dorado. It has been interpreted as an allegory for Brazil's recent past and Latin American politics in general. 
During the 1960s, in the wake of declining venues to exhibit their films, Cinema Nuovo filmmakers founded their own distribution company, Die Film, along with commercial producer Luis Carlos Barreto. They also attempted to make more commercial films because those were what were making money. And with Makunema from 1969, the movement achieved its first real dual success, meaning it was successful both at the box office and with critics. Based on a Brazilian novel of the same name, the film is also often cited as the first major film of the third and final phase of Cinema Nuovo. After a second coup in 1968, the repressive military regime of Brazil introduced censorship. So now that med filmmakers were no longer allowed to be directly critical of the government and instead had to use like allegory and metaphor when criticizing the government. This third phase would also be called the quote-unquote cannibal tropicalist phase or just the tropicalist phase. Tropicalism was a movement or is a movement that focuses on the eccentric or quirky or gaudy, I think was a word I saw used, with bad taste and very jarring colors. Gaudy colors. That's what that's what that word means. The cannibalism aspect, by the way, was both literal and metaphorical depending on who you were dealing with. For example, both types of cannibalism are on display in Rocha's Como Era Gostoso o Meu Francés, or How Tasty Was My Little Frenchman, from 1971. In the film, the protagonist is abducted and eaten by literal cannibals. Rocha believed cannibalism represented the violence that was necessary to enact social change in Brazil, stating, quote, From Cinema Nuovo, it should be learned that an aesthetic of violence before being primitive is revolutionary. It is the initial moment when the colonizer becomes aware of the colonized. Only when confronted with violence does the colonizer understand, through horror, the strength of the culture he exploits. As a whole, with Brazil modernizing in the global economy, Cinema Nuovo in this third phase also became more polished and professional and saw films that were distinctly Brazilian in appearance, but that were pushed to such an extreme that its focus was more aesthetic-based rather than politically focused. Brazilian consumers and filmmakers began to feel that Cinema Nuovo was beginning to turn its back on its origins. This observation led to the birth of Cinema Marginal, or Nuovo Cinema Nuovo, which used quote-unquote dirty screen and garbage aesthetics to return Cinema Nuovo to its original focus on marginalized characters and social problems. These filmmakers called the third phase Cinema Nuovo Risho, or Nouveau Riche Cinema, and wanted to replace Rocha's cannibal and hunger metaphors with that of literal garbage. These films were mostly anti-intellectual and were disliked intensely by the swath of well-educated Cinema Nuovo filmmakers and critics. By 1970, Cinema Nuovo Films had won awards at international film festivals. It was a very well-regarded, or it had been a very well-regarded movement in the country. In 1970, Rocha published a manifesto on the progress of Cinema Nuovo, in which he stated that he was pleased that Cinema Nuovo had been accepted by the world at large, both critically and financially. But Rocha also warned filmmakers and filmgoers that being too complacent in the achievement of the movement would return Brazil to its pre-Cinema Nuovo state. 
He said, quote, the movement is bigger than any one of us, but the young should know that they cannot be irresponsible about the present and the future because today's anarchy can become tomorrow's slavery. Before long, imperialism will start to exploit the newly created films. If the Brazilian cinema is the palm tree of tropicalism, it is important that the people who have lived through the drought are on guard to make sure that Brazilian cinema doesn't become underdeveloped. His fears came true. In 1977, filmmaker Carlos Deguas said that, quote, One can only talk about Cinema Nuovo in nostalgic or figurative terms because Cinema Nuovo as a group no longer exists, above all because it has been diluted into Brazilian cinema. Toward the end of Cinema Nuovo, the Brazilian government had created their own company to encourage production of Brazilian cinema that ignored the Cinema Nuovo ideology altogether. So let's talk about that state-run stuff. During one of the most repressive regimes in Brazilian history, when the richest members of society were basically given free reign, the state became involved in film at all levels. This involvement was so deep that the 1970s would become the most successful era in the country's film history. Well, commercially successful. Critically and artistically, not so much. In 1966, the National Film Institute, or INC, was created, and in 1967, production subsidies were established. In 1969, Embra Filme was formed, first with the goal to promote Brazilian films abroad, but by 1975, it had absorbed all of the functions of INC and was enforcing a screen quota as well as subsidizing local production. Embra Filme was also criticized for its selection criteria, bureaucracy, and favoritism, and was seen as a form of government control over artistic production. On the other hand, much of the work of this period was produced mainly because of its existence. So we basically have Brazilian films from this era because of the Brazilian government. So it's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation when it comes to preserving the Brazilian film industry. From 1966 to 1971, the annual Brazilian feature film production climbed from 28 films a year to 94 and peaked at 102 in 1980, which to this day is the highest number of feature films ever produced in Brazil in a single year. Unlike Canada, Brazil had implemented screen quotas as well. And if you forgot, that's time where theaters were required to show films made and produced within their own countries. Embra Filme had raised the quota from 63 days per year per theater in 1969 up to 140 days per year in 1980. And while that's impressive and you're like, oh, good, they're preserving their own film industry, that quota is not indicative of the qualities of the films that were being made in Brazil at this time. There were some high quality films made, don't get me wrong, but there was this new genre porno shunshada that increasingly dominated the film industry at this time. It's exactly what it sounds like. They were sex comedies, though explicit sex was not shown at first. These films thrived because they were cheap to make and acquire by local theaters to meet the Brazilian screen quotas. In fact, many owners of theaters would even finance low-budget films, including those of pornographic content, so they actually had enough Brazilian films to be seen in their own theaters. So 
you know, a little bit of a Ouroboros situation there, but what are you going to do? But yeah, the porn, totally fine. The country was under a military regime, but the censorship that was in place, they were more concerned about political stuff and sexual stuff was like totally cool as far as they were concerned. So porn. While questionable in quality, these films managed to draw in enough of an audience to keep the market steady. Examples of these films, if you want to go watch them, include Aviuva Virgin, The Virgin Widow, and Os Mansos, Lenient Husbands, both from 1972. No judgment, you do you. But it's low-key porn. It'll be, on the, it'll be on the list. I'll put them on the list for you. See if you can find them in, in the U.S. In the 1970s and early 1980s, there were exceptions to the growing trend of Brazilian cinema, including Dona Flor e sus dois maridos, or Dona Flor and her two husbands from 1976, which broke all Brazilian box office records and was not a sex movie, but this, like I said, increasingly rare. By 1981, over 70% of all Brazilian feature film production was pornographic. It was no longer erotic and or comic like it had been pretty much in the 70s. Now it was just out and out porn. Only one of the 80 films not produced by Embra Filme that year wasn't porn. Additionally, 20 of the top grossing 30 films in 1988 that were Brazilian origin were pornographic. It seemed like the quality of Brazilian cinema had hit rock bottom. Not bagging on porn, you do you, but you know, it's a low, we, I think we can all agree, it's a lower art form. And if my parents are listening, I've never seen porn, I don't know what you're talking about. So I don't know what any of these people are talking about. I learned about it in health class. If you know, you know. Toward the end of the 1980s, Brazil experienced an increase in production of short films thanks to the introduction of inexpensive video equipment onto the market, so significant work was being made by indigenous groups who previously had never had access to any kind of film production. In 1989, which was also the year Brazil had the first more or less democratic election in over a century, Brazilian film production had fallen to 25 features per year. On March 16, 1990, the Ministry of Culture was closed and Embra Filme was disbanded. The Brazilian film industry virtually collapsed overnight. In 1991, only nine Brazilian feature films were released, and the following year, only six appeared in local theaters. By 93, amidst continuing financial and political crises, a new Ministry of Culture promised $25 million to support Brazilian film, and in the following year, 10 films were released. Eventually, this would lead to a new burst in cinematic production in the mid-90s, thanks in addition to the $25 million of support, but also to new incentive laws under the new government. The comedy Carlota Joaquina, Princess of Brazil, came out in 1995 and is considered by many as the first film of the Retomada, or the return of national film production. Since then, there have been Brazilian films of such caliber that they have been given Oscar nominations, namely Four Days in September from 97 and City of God from 2002. Today, Brazilian cinema is once again flush with social and political criticism. They are also, by and large, more accommodating to more casual filmgoers than the politically charged Cinema Nuovo films had been in the first stage. Incentive laws also allow Brazilian films to receive funding from companies that, by acting as sponsors, are allowed tax deductions for giving money to somebody to make a movie. 
A common criticism of this move is that while films are no longer directly controlled by state all the time, they are, however, subject to the approval of the rich entrepreneurs that finance them. Even with funding, there are still areas that are tricky for filmmakers in Brazil, namely distribution, uh, getting their movies to play on local television channels and DVD releases, because that's still bigger in other markets than it is currently in the United States. Last year, 10 films were produced in the country, including Fagrao, which took home a Havana Film Festival New York Award. So keep a lookout for these new Brazilian films. They're still very much in their comeback era. And hey, all like 600 of you or whatever it is, put some eyes on some Brazilian cinema. H- help them out. that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account which features my watch lists, film diaries, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I just remembered, because it's kind of weird because it fell on a Wednesday this year, that this past Wednesday, so the 16th, was the third anniversary of this podcast and also my 13th anniversary of living in Los Angeles. So that was a fun milestone to realize that we hit that I totally forgot about more or less. Um, But yeah, I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you please rate, review and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. It's 11 o'clock at night right now on Friday. I'm not drinking coffee, but normally I do. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, I'm going to try something a little bit different. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but it's one of those ones I like to throw on the end of a month just to test something out. I'm going to take a look into how Latin American filmmakers and performers sort of dug out their own area of Hollywood, having come from or originated in other places. Like we talked about Guillermo del Toro. We talked about Carmen Miranda. We talked about um, Alfonso Cuaron, like all these different filmmakers, like when they left their country's film industries for the United States, like how did a Latin American Hollywood cinema, you know, subgenre kind of develop? I want to kind of take a look at that and see what's what's going on there and see if there's anything to kind of make an episode out of because I want to start doing like deep dives into genres and film movements. So that's going to be sort of my way to test that out next week. So should be interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm excited to dive into it because I think it's going to be very interesting. But I, anytime I do something new or something that, you know, has a questionable amount of ample resources, I always get a little twitchy. But you know what? I think I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to have a good time doing my research and be, be in me. <laughs> Anyway, uh, thanks again for listening for the past three years. My God. And until next time, that's a wrap.